from the dark web to your radio dial. You are listening to CyberTalk Radio on News 1200 WOAI. Welcome to CyberTalk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran. Today, I'm joined by a couple of guests uh, who are software development experts um, all across back-end mobile apps, infrastructure apps, writing API-based services, and they're going to talk with us about how we build those things in the right way and then how we secure them properly and what uh, you should be thinking about if you're a developer or if you're a business buyer even going out to talk to folks uh, that are going to do development work for you. Uh, or if you're consuming a service that someone's already built. So, uh, Jason, I'd like to go ahead and introduce you first. Uh, Jason Strawn with us, and give us a little of your background. Oh, thanks, Brett. So, yeah, my name is Jason Strawn. I'm a co-founder and CEO of Grok Interactive. We're a custom software development company here in San Antonio. I'm also a co-founder of a career school in town called CodeUp, where we train software development uh, developers. I've been writing code in NIT professionally for going on 24 years. Um, so when I started writing software, it was all desktop. There was no web or mobile and have continued to go from there. For the last four years, we've been growing a team of software development talent here in San Antonio where we do custom web and mobile application development. So and you brought with us one of your lead developers today. So uh, Anton, go ahead and introduce yourself. Hi, my name is Anton and thank you for having us here. Um, my background is um, I went to school at UTSA and I got a degree in the cybersecurity. Um, that's what it's called now, but back then it was called um, infrastructure assurance. And I worked with Grok Interactive um, as a software developer for about three years now. So wonderful. So uh, we're keeping some of these uh, cybersecurity grads in San Antonio. Yeah, it's one we've had a, a couple of guests in the program where we've discussed the. Uh, one, the cybersecurity talent shortage. The second piece is just uh, where are all these folks going? And with uh, being a top program um, across the nation and really across the world, um, yeah, are we doing what we need to do from an economic development perspective here in San Antonio to create interesting jobs for folks like you? To start off with, uh, want to go through and help our audience understand some different terms that we'll use uh, throughout this program. And these are, are Things that, uh, folks, if you're a super technical developer and you're listening to this on our podcast on iTunes for the replay um, or Pocket Cast or any of the other services where we're out there, you may fast forward for a moment. But for those uh, listening on, on the radio, we want to make sure that we're uh, having a conversation that everyone can follow along with. So um, I think everyone's familiar with what a mobile app is. Um, everyone's got them on their phones now. They're using them. But these mobile apps are not just a piece of software that runs on the phone. They're made up of a, a whole bunch of components. So we'd like to uh, kind of walk folks through what really makes a mobile app and what are all these different pieces? Excellent question. And of course, it really depends on the actual application. Certainly, there are some apps that rely more on the hardware of the actual device, whether that's a phone or a tablet. But the vast majority of apps that we see in the app stores and used you know, throughout every industry and by users all over the world are really interfaces to a much larger um, feature set. Oftentimes those mobile apps also have a web component where you can go onto the internet and log into a similar application. So let's think of maybe QuickBooks online as an example. You can log in through their website and interact with QuickBooks, but you can also download their mobile app and interact with QuickBooks uh, through your device. 
the information that's stored on that mobile device is actually having to communicate back to uh, a central location so that it can uh, have that data accessible across multiple different platforms. And to do that, we host most of the data and the logic in what's commonly now referred to in at least business speak as the cloud. But this is you know, magically being hosted somewhere out on the internet where you typically have a couple of components that I don't want to get too technical yet, but you're going to have one that is a service that allows the mobile device to talk to this cloud server that's sitting out somewhere in the world. And then behind it's most likely going to be a data store, a database of some sort. So to go back to the QuickBooks example, if I go and create an invoice on my mobile phone, it's actually communicating to a server where it's creating that invoice and storing it. And so then when my accountant logs in, you know, two states away on their desktop, they're seeing that invoice in real time on their desktop. And that, to me, is the, the behind the curtains that people don't think about when interacting with a mobile application, is that it's really just a front for uh, an internet service. Yeah. Anton? And then, yeah, so, I mean, as we're thinking through this, this changes the security paradigm. Because before, you, your interface used to be on your computer, and your computer was on a private, safe, trusted network accessing these other services, the database or the, the back end, as, as folks call it. Now, with this mobile world, you're in your car, hopefully not driving while you're checking invoices in QuickBooks, but you're in a car, you're in a restaurant, you're at an airport, you're never on a trusted network at this point anymore with your application backend. That is correct. And a lot of times you're relying on um, free Wi-Fi services at Starbucks or your local coffee shop or, you know, maybe your city offers it or whatever. And I think that we have established this kind of blind trust that if I can get on the Internet, you know, the all, all Internet is made equally and it's really not. Yeah. Yeah, it's something that um, you were talking about is that <clears throat> I noticed that, <clears throat> that there's a, like a pendulum between uh, the client and server side that in, initially we all had these terminals that we connected to the mainframe and um, and then we went away from that going into the, uh, you know, you have a, a all of your applications are on your computer and they work on that computer and then now we're in the age where, you know, most of software that, that is written has to communicate over the network and it has to communicate over the internet because we're we're not going to be stuck in our office the entire lives. So um, because of this mobility, um, we don't really think about, as you said, uh, about the the security aspect of it. Because in 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 uh, I think an average person's mind is that when I connect to the internet, I'm secure, um, and I you know I trust my ISP to be uh, to have me uh, my connection secured, um, and so that's actually not the case. Um, and so it's up to the, uh, the the developers of the application to make sure that there's a, there's a secure channel for their customers or for their users. Uh, and so that's what, what, what we do most of the time. And when we develop our applications, is our primary focus is security and establishing that secure channel. And I think if you want to realize just how much your phone <clears throat> relies on that Internet connection, I mean, put your phone in airplane mode. And then just go and open up a couple of apps and see what happens. And you're going to find that that subset of applications that work on your phone really doesn't give you the rich experience that you're used to. Yeah. 
You're listening to 1200 WAI. This is Cyber Talk Radio. I'm here with Jason and Anton, uh, two experts in mobile application development and security, and we're talking through mobile backends and uh, how to build secure mobile software. So as we go on, so you're talking about that all Internet's not created secure. So this means that it's really on you as an application developer to build a secure application that can run in an untrusted environment. Absolutely. Um, and the customers expect that without even thinking about it, right? This isn't something that they're, uh, your average consumer is not going to be able to uh, explore all of the security risks involved with every piece of software they put on their phone or their tablet or their computer. And so there's this level of expectation in the market that if we are going to deliver software, then it should meet these security standards by default. Of course, we see headlines weekly um, that show that there's plenty of software out there that doesn't rise to this standard, and we're consistently seeing breaches and problems as a result of that. Yeah. So as you go through, uh, there's a, a few different concepts on security. So there's the the authentication piece. So this is uh, logging in. You've got to store those credentials somewhere. Anton, how do you, you think through about the high level of setting up a secure authentication system? Um, well, first, it's going to start at the communication um, level where your your device that the user is going to be using has to be communicating over a secure channel, which would be something like HTTPS. Uh, and this is a little bit technical, but essentially you want to make sure that there's the communication between the client and the server is encrypted while it while the data transfer is happening. So that's the 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 first level where it starts, and then it goes into uh, making sure that the server is able to. Uh, properly process the information the user inputs, um, such as that if the user is attempting uh, to input something malicious, uh, the server has to be able to account for that and and sort of remedy that. Yeah, um, little bobby tables. It's, exactly. Or, uh, exactly. If, if you guys follow the um, uh, Bruce uh, put up on his blog post, so a, a company in the UK just legally registered a SQL injection attack as their company name. Because uh, they believed that the the UK registry system um, was not um, type checking and and filtering properly, um, and they yeah caused some problems over there. It was an interesting little uh, <laughs> little tidbit there. Yeah. So yeah, input validation very important. If you're a developer out there and we use the words input validation, you're like, what does that mean? Please go Google it now. Yes. <laughs> And Little Bobby Tables, too. Yeah. Yes, Little Bobby little Tables. Bobby it's a good tables. comic if you don't read XKCD. Right. I actually have a shirt that says, hello, my name is dash dash drop table users. Yes. Um, so, but it, and, and then the fact that um, uh, there's a lot of applications that are developed that don't account for the fact that user, um, you know, as a developer, um, I always like to think of the positive case. Uh, but there's a, a, a lot of negative cases that could happen, and you have to account for every one of them. Um, otherwise, that's how vulnerabilities happen. Yeah. Yeah. The, the world is uh, paved with bad outcomes through good intentions. Right. Yes. So you've got the input validation. You've got the storing. So now you're, you're storing these credentials. So you're storing somebody's username. You're storing their password. So like, should I just keep the password in an Excel spreadsheet if I'm writing a, a back end, uh, or do I do something better with the password than that? Right. If you if you keep your passwords in the spreadsheet, that means it's like a a, a public lobby that anybody can come by and just take a look. Uh, but no, all of the passwords and in fact any information that you would consider to be 
um, sensitive information, um, such as um, addresses or um, credit card numbers or anything related to, um, let's say, a pay payment system or person's uh, personal information um, would have to be encrypted on the server. So um, things like passwords are usually uh, hashed one way so that there's no way to reverse it. Um, so the uh, information such as credit cards, uh, credit card payment information has its own separate uh, certification process called PCI DSS, um, which requ requires um, that if you are storing this payment information on your server, that you go through a checklist of uh, security guidelines that, that you have to abide by. And these are established by the uh, financial industry and, and, and it's uh, secured through, through that. Yeah, that's one where industry has done a good job regulating itself. So the, the PCI DSS is not a law. It's a set of industry regulations where if you're a business and you want to take Visa or MasterCard or these other, um, the financial institutions and the merchant uh, cards have gotten together to put together a, a good checklist. Even if you don't accept credit cards inside of your business, it's a good checklist to follow. It's mm -hmm. uh, one where there's difference in the compliance standards. Some of them are descriptive. They say you should take a reasonable effort to secure your information. Um, PCI DSS is very prescriptive. It says you should have a code audit process where you have a separate quality assurance team checking the code from the people that write the code up front for your application. It, it goes through that and it goes through uh, 130 or so different, very prescriptive things that you should be doing to write secure software and run a secure environment. Right, and, and I would actually recommend in addition to the PCI DSS, something that every developer should be looking at is the OWASP um, top 10 list, which is updated almost every year and usually stays the same unless there was a major major change that would affect it. Uh, but OWASP stands for Open Web Application uh, Security Project. It's an open uh, project that anybody can participate in. Um, and it's usually controlled by the, the security community. And they, they lay out the top 10 rules that every developer should follow or top 10 rules that you should uh, do about your application when you're developing it. Yeah. Is cross-site scripting still on that top 10 list? Actually, it is number three now. Number three. Oh, so this is, this is one that was, yeah, a huge one for years. Uh, I haven't looked at the list super recently, but, uh, yeah, these things don't go away apparently. Right. Yes. Um, and, uh, I'm surprised to see that um, one of the attacks that I was most familiar with in just recent years um, is uh, cross-site request forgery, and that's kind of low on the list. But you actually see it, that happening a lot more often um, than you do the cross-site scripting. Um, there was a story that I heard whenever I learned about CSRF uh, where I believe it was the uh, one of the banks um, allowed the user to... Oh, they didn't check for the cross-site request forgery, and their, their um, users, their account holders, were getting emails with an image attachment. And as soon as they opened that email, not even the attachment, just the email, um, it would execute a malicious code and then transfer money out of their account through a, uh, a cross-site request forgery. Yeah, that's a, another good little uh, tip and trick. If you listen to this program, um, you'll pick these up over time. Uh, but don't... Um, turn on images by default in your email. So there's a checkbox in basically every mail client out there where you can uh, turn off show pictures by default. And so if I get an email from somebody that I know and I trust and it's, and I'm sure it's okay, then I can click show pictures if I need to see the pictures. But if I have emails that and we all get them that come into our inbox, there's no reason to show and process that image because it's just yet one, it's one more thing that can have a security problem in it. So 
what else is on that OWASP top 10? So you uh, cross-site scripting, cross-site um, request forgery. Sure. Um, and, and in fact, uh, as I was looking through this to refresh my mind a little bit, um, I, there's actually two lists uh, that are maintained by OWASP right now. Uh, the top 10 list is the main list that addresses both the web and the, uh, the network aspect of it, as well as uh, the new mobile top 10 list, which is addressing all of the mobile-specific um, uh, things. And we can go through both of those let's, if you'd like. Let's, let's go through that mobile top 10 list. I'm sure. This is a new one for me completely. So the mobile top 10 list uh, mostly focuses on the client aspect of it, as in uh, what are the things that you should do or you should pay attention to when you're developing the application. And we're on the radio, so you should start at number 10 and work your way up. We'll do okay. a top 10 countdown here. All righty. So, so the top 10 is extraneous functionality, and often developers uh, include like hidden backdoors or uh, basically things that are that would be helpful for them to debug the application. Um, and that's something that should be taken care of um, in the process of uh, committing your code. So when a developer writes his code, um, before that code is actually merged into the entire application base, um, all, of the, uh, all of the debugging tools and all of the debugging scripts that, that the developer may have used have to be removed in the review process. And that's something we do at Grok Interactive is that we have a very strict uh, review process that you must be uh, reviewed by at least two developers in order to merge your code into the base. So at that point, you can get rid of all of those little uh, debugging problems. Yeah. And if your developers are not providing you a debug build and a production build of your app, that likely means you actually have one build that includes all that debug stuff in it. It doesn't mean that they don't have debug stuff. It's in there, and you just may not know the secret key sequence or swipe or whatever else to get into it. Exactly. So uh, number nine. So number nine is reverse engineering. And this one is a, a little bit hard to address in certain aspects in the mobile world. Uh, when you release your application, you actually get this uh, package file uh, depending on the platform. But that package file can actually be reverse engineered. Um, and so there isn't a lot that you can do to fight against that because essentially you just somebody can decompile your code. Uh, but what you can do is practice, uh, just practice a safe development where you uh, break things into mo smaller modules, and those smaller modules communicate on the on on the uh, on the different level, and and they don't hold all of the information, all the key information that may be required to uh, find out a certain process. Right. Did you have a comment on that, Jason? Yeah, so what I would say is, you know, the easy way for me to think about that is always assume that any endpoints or any servers that your app is talking to in the cloud or in, you know, in the Internet are available for everybody to see, right? Because you can reverse engineer almost any mobile application quite easily, um, you can figure out who it's communicating with and how. And so as a developer, we should assume that everybody that uses our app knows how to communicate with that server, and we've written it in a way in which they can't. And I think a prime example that we've seen recently of this kind of issue was Pokemon Go, right? It came out, it got super popular, people reverse engineered it, figured out the APIs that it was using, and then wrote software so you could put it on your desktop and run it all day, and it would go all over the world collecting Pokemon for you. <laughs> because you didn't actually have to have the app open, you didn't actually have to be walking around, those developers should have assumed that that was going to get reverse engineered and that those endpoints were going to be exposed. And as a result, they should have built security precautions in 
to make sure that people couldn't do that. Now, in that example, it's a video game. So not a whole lot of risk. Maybe in that case, they decided to ship so they can get it out to market and then add that security in later, which worked out fine. But had that been a major retail chain, that might have you know caused some major problems. So I think that you know what we're hearing here is um, never assume that anything in your app is truly going to remain secret. Yeah, right. Security by obscurity is not a solution. Amen. Yes. Right. Okay. So exactly. on our way up to number eight. So number eight, uh, number nine actually flows kind of into number eight. Um, number eight is code tempering. Uh, basically. Code tempering means that when an application is installed on a device, how easy is it for a user to access the data that's, that this application stores? So, for example, um, if you have a, uh, a Pokemon Go app, the, the, the way that you would be able to access the data that Pokemon Go um, stores is you would go and, and somebody would, with a, a little bit of a technical background would be able to open up their phone on their computer and browse the directory uh, where the application is installed and then look at the data that is stored by that application. Yeah. If you have an Android phone, you can even download a file manager from the Google Play Store and browse the directories in your phone. Mm-hmm. Apple uh, hides that stuff from the users, but all those things are still there behind the scenes even on a, an iPhone. Right. Exactly. Uh, there's a clever way of doing that on the iPhone, but... Um, it, it, and some of the ways that you can kind of fight against that is by um, storing only the pieces of information that need to be stored on the device. So, for example, you don't want to store things like your credentials on a device because um, if you if somebody downloads a malicious app, that app can now find that information and then use it against the user. Um, so some of the things that you want to store are like non-sensitive data or data that maybe is too large to download every time. Um, and things like that. Yeah, and you can even uh, store that data in an encrypted format um, using a key that's in memory in your app that writes it out to the system. Android, you've got to worry about this a little bit more because other apps can access data between them. Uh, Apple, in theory, firewalls that so that one app can't access another app's data, but I don't know if there's not private APIs that allow at least Apple apps to access other other apps' data. Right, so um, that kind of goes into number seven, uh, which is the client uh, code quality. Uh, this is what I talked about a little bit earlier, is the process of reviewing the, the code and making sure that no bugs go into the code and no code is uh, ever reviewed that goes into the, the main code base. Um, and so as I mentioned at Grok, we review the every, every commit that's uh, being merged into the, the main code base um, is reviewed by a developer and is assessed to make sure that there's no vul- vulnerabilities or this couldn't cause any more problems or bugs um, and that the code is uh, essentially only what you what you need and not something that you know could be could be reworked yeah um, so that's that's actually pretty important that's why it's at number seven and then in that code quality piece uh, so there's a couple of different things folks think about under these software static analysis tools so there's one where people are scanning this is not for a security piece but they're scanning for software licensing so if you're incorporating open source or different things you'll scan your code to see um, are we following license stuff properly that doesn't make you any safer that just keeps you legally in compliance the other with the, the static or dynamic analysis tools can actually go through and help assist those reviewers in um, ensuring that they're catching those security vulnerabilities um, as they're going through that review process. Right. And that goes into number, number six. six. 
Uh, so number six is insecure authorization, um, and that's something that Jason talked about with uh, Pokemon Go. Uh, we're going to keep going back to that example. It's a good one. Um, Every, everyone's seen it because either they're a kid or a young adult that played it or they're a parent that had folks that did. Uh, we're going to pick back up on this after the bottom of the hour break here for news, traffic, and weather. You've been listening to 1200 WAI. This is Cyber Talk Radio, and we're going through the OWASP Top 10 Web Application Security Vulnerabilities and Mobile App Security Vulnerabilities. Welcome back to Cyber Talk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, and I'm here with Jason and Anton from Grok Interactive this week. And if you were with us before the uh, bottom of the hour break, we're going through the OWASP mobile app top 10 security vulnerability list. Uh, we had uh, dropped off in the middle of uh, introducing number six. Right, so number six is uh, insecure authorization. And I think what insecure what they're trying to focus on is the uh, ability for a user to access um, authorized resources without being actually authorized. So, um, <clears throat> what this point talks about is when a developer uh, creates a let's say it's a I think what we're, we're going to talk about was the Pokemon Go um, when Jason was talking about uh, people reverse engineering uh, Pokemon Go and being able to access those endpoints, um, they able to access this information and uh, in the number six would prevent something like this from happening where it would uh, secure the endpoints to uh, from being accessed by non-authorized applications. So for example, if you have an application that's using a private API and you don't want anybody else using that private API, uh, you want to secure that API from other unauthorized devices. Um, and so you would in, put in place uh, security measures for um, authenticating each individual device that is installing your application. So um, you can keep track of that. Moving on to number five. And number five is uh, insu insufficient cryptography. And essentially what that talks about is um, how much encryption do you do on your client app? Um, right, so you can. Uh, this doesn't affect the, uh, the sort of the communication channel of it. Like there's a there's another point that's um, higher on the list that talks about the securing the communication channel and making sure that you're using um, the proper protocols. This uh, talks about uh, if you're storing sensitive information on the client, and this is something you talked about um, earlier in the show. Uh, when you're storing sensitive information on the client application, you want to make sure that it's encrypted and it's stored securely so that it cannot be just simply read um, either by the user itself or the another application that may be trying to access that data. So you want to keep 
uh, sufficient cryptography within the application to be able to encrypt the sensitive information that you're storing on the device. Yeah. And if, if you're thinking about writing your own crypto system, uh, the first question you should ask yourself is, do you have a PhD in mathematics and specifically focused in the number theory area? If you answer no to that question, you should let somebody else write the encryption library and you should use what they've written. Um, so this is in, this goes through just from the actual core of the encryption to how the, the keys are generated and all of these little pieces um, add up into where most crypto is broken because of some tiny vulnerability in the system itself. And those encryption libraries that are built into Android and iOS now, um, there's, they're there, they're vetted by Apple and Google and the top developers and PhDs that have gone and looked through this code. Please use their code. Please don't write your own. Right. The best practice is to follow the guidelines that are put in front of you instead of trying to invent your own way of, a, of making something seem more secure when it's actually going to be less secure. Number four. So number four is insecure authentication. Now, this is a little bit different from insecure um, authorization. The authentication, the insecure authentication uh, refers to the process when the user authenticates to the service and then making sure that that process is secure and the uh, the channel of communication that's being established is also secure. So, for instance, if your application is authenticating to um, an, an API, um, you shouldn't be sending your your passwords in in, in plain text and uh, something that could be intercepted in the in the uh, com- in in the process of communication. Yeah, your password should run through that hash function on the local device before it's ever transmitted, even though you're going to transmit it. And we'll probably talk about this TLS or HTTPS further up the list. But even though you're going to transmit it through an encrypted tunnel, it should be hashed and only deliver the hash, Jason. Yeah. And what you're touching on there is a point that I'd say is one of the top security issues that I see when doing code reviews of other people's software is uh, for those listeners that aren't catching the difference between those, Brett and uh, Anton have been talking about using a hash for a password, but we use the word encryption when we're talking about other things. And I think it's just really quick worth noting to the listener that doesn't understand the difference is that something that's encrypted can be decrypted, right? It's We're going to obfuscate it in a way in which you can't tell what it is, but then there is a way to reverse that, right? So if I have my password and I encrypt it, Theoretically, I can decrypt that password and see what's there again. It's kind of like the anti-secret coder ring from Christmas Story or whatever, right? Drink your Ovaltine. With a hash, it's one way. So you get the information, you run it through this algorithm, and it puts out this string of characters, and it can never go back, theoretically, to its original state. So they're given a password hash. There's no way to reverse that back without... I mean, there's some ways that you can generate large amounts of these hashes called rainbow tables, and that's a whole other topic. But on a high level, if your developers are encrypting your client passwords, that's a big red flag. It's a good time to stop and think about your security practices during your software development. These should be one-way hashes, and like Brett said, we're going to hash it on the device, then send that hash to the server. It's going to compare that to the hash of your password, and if they match... At no point should the software ever be able to tell what your password was. And, of course, there's other things you can do to this hash, and that gets into really deep um, technical stuff that I'm not wanting to jump into. But the big question, if you're having software developed right now that has authentication, 
ask your developers how they're handling that password. Yeah, and if you, you say bcrypt and scrypt and your developer has a blank look on their face, be concerned. Right. Yes, and the other part of the authentication process is also session management, which which is w the process of where the server knows who the user that logged in is and making sure that the server can actually identify this user. So, for example, um, if you don't have an account, you should not be able to log into the system. Uh, and if you have an account and you logged out, somebody else shouldn't be able to pick up your session and continue on with it. So that's all part of the authentication uh, process. Number three. So number three is insecure communication. And that kind of ties into what we just talked about, where we, we the information that we send, uh, we make sure that that information is secure. We also need to make sure that the channel of that uh, information, uh, where that information is transferred, is also secured. And that's where the SSL um, and uh, security certificates come into place. So to, to when your client application is communicating with, a, with an API service, you have to make sure that it's communicating over the HTTP protocol. It's utilizing the the correct certificate, and it's making sure that the certificate is up to date. Uh, that way, you will guarantee at least the communication cannot be uh, subject to a man in the middle attack. And uh, I should use like I should use old versions of OpenSSL to create this tunnel, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Very specific version, actually. Yeah. So, and, and I we're laughing a little bit, but so this is also you should you should be using HTTPS or TLS as it's called. Um, a common way that this is done in, in the non-mobile world, your your API on the other end is probably running OpenSSL um, to terminate that. And uh, in order to keep that safe, you should pay attention to the OpenSSL. Um, disclosures list if you're running it anywhere inside of your apps and be ready to update on a regular basis because if it, the man in the middle as Anton mentioned there if they find another way to tamper with this then your super secret channel is no longer super secret number two um, is actually insecure data storage and I think we mentioned that a little bit um, in the previous topics and and if you notice the pattern that emerges is that all of these topics all these top 10 numbers are all surrounding uh, the same sort of idea, right? You're, you want to be secure. You want to be, um, you want to maintain all of the sensitive information uh, from easily being easily accessible, and all of these sort of pile on top of each other to form this sort of shell around what your application is. And that security blanket uh, would be something that you you could feel safe about releasing in your application. So um, number two talks about encrypting. Uh, your your data that you store in the application, um, this is the data that would be stored on the device itself. And you want to make sure that this data cannot be leaked. Um, this data can't be, if it's a sensitive data, for example, if it's your, um, if we're talking about uh, like a banking app, you don't want to store user credentials on uh, on the device. Or if you do, um, you make you have to make sure that it's secure and encrypted. Um, right, and you don't want that data to be leaked out. Um, in addition to um, data that you receive from the server, you have to make sure to implement practices of uh, when the user logs out, uh, you have to dump that data. You can't store that data after the user has already ended the session. Otherwise, that that becomes a vector for an attack, essentially. Yeah, so is that mobile banking app, so say you're in, you're browsing through your checking account, your phone has now downloaded that list of transactions because it has to be able to render it and display it on your screen. And that mobile right. banking app needs to be storing that 
in a secure way while you're using it so that other apps on the phone can't access it or if like your phone crashed in the middle of running it that there wasn't going to be remnants left on the phone that somebody could plug in and then go through and, and delete this stuff. Uh, one that folks are probably familiar with is this app Snapchat that it talked about that it, they delete all of the snaps after 10 seconds. You send it to somebody and then it's gone. And then uh, a while ago, folks found out they weren't really gone, that, that they had a problem early on in their days where they were actually leaving the data behind on the phone. So these ephemeral messages that people thought they sent to each other, they found out weren't exactly ephemeral. Right. Uh, yeah, and that's a good example of this uh, data storage that was not handled properly. And then also just cleaning up after yourself of deleting data, going back to check, because your app's not always going to exit in the way you think it is. You may have a nice, clean exit parameter, but phones run out of batteries. And the mm-hmm. exit parameters do not run when that phone runs out of batteries. And it's going to start back up, and your startup should check, did I exit in a clean state? If I didn't exit in a clean state, go through and run my exit parameters so I clean up all of, even if I've encrypted the data, it still should clean up after itself. Exactly, exactly. So you're listening to 1200 WAI. Uh, we're here on CyberTalk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt. We're here with Anton and Jason from Grok, and we are about to give you the number one mobile application security vulnerability on the OWASP list. So the number one uh item on the mobile top 10 OWASP list is improper platform usage. And this one is probably the most important and should be done um, as the very first thing as you're developing the application. Uh, The improper platform usage uh, talks about uh, selecting your platforms that you're going to be writing on. For example, uh, you know, if you're choosing to go with Apple, uh, do you need to to use Touch ID? Do you need to implement Keychain? Uh, those type of libraries, um, do you need to use third-party libraries uh, in your application? And are they secure? Um, do they have the? Do they have any vulnerabilities? Have they been patched? Um, things like that. And also, it also ties back into um, when you're writing your code to make sure that, um, as a developer, I'm consciously uh, proactive about selecting uh, libraries that are very popular, that are used by a lot of people, that I don't pull something in that was just written uh, three years ago and never picked up again, uh, I want to make sure that at least the oldest package that I'm going to be using is going to be at least six months old, like no later than six months, um, because after that, I feel like that's the the point at which the project is probably uh, being uh, winding down. And so you don't want to use packages that are old. You don't want to use packages that are not used a lot. Um, and you want to consider those things at the time of writing or before. Um, so those are the that's the probably the very important part of of uh, writing secure mobile applications is that being able to rely on the the third party packages that you're going to be using. Yeah. Well, and I think what falls also under M1 and what makes it, in my opinion, one of the most um, compelling of the ten to really think about when you're building your software is when you combine it with any of the other nine that are on the list. This gets really scary really fast, right? If part of the platform on the device that I'm trying to use is things like location services or the microphone or the camera, and I'm not using that properly, and then I end up with a second vulnerability off of that list, I mean, you're exposing the potential of having hundreds, thousands, millions of users sending data that would compromise their personal security right? Their physical security, their perimeter security by saying, here's where I'm at, or you can turn my microphone on and listen to me through this application security flaw, or you could turn on this camera 
and take pictures every you know 20 minutes and keep up with where I am. And these become major issues when combined amongst multiple. So if you're building an application and you're trying to think, am I, do I need to use the camera? Um, only use device features that you must use to make your application work. And then to Anton's point, you need to have a security practice in place where you're going back and reviewing these on a regular basis and saying, are the packages I'm using, are the ways I'm communicating with this hardware still the best practice? Because if you expose your user to that kind of security flaw, um, it might be uh, irrecoverable. And, and as a user, one of the things you can do is uh, help with the, your own on the permissions management side. So you don't have to give every app permission to do everything. So, I mean, as an example, I use Facebook Messenger all the time. Facebook Messenger does not have access to my camera. I don't use the the camera portion of Facebook Messenger. So I block that at the Android operating system level. So uh, you can do this across all of your apps. And, and that background, as Jason was talking about, letting the if the app has access to the camera and it has access to run as a background service, if that app gets compromised, and that can be their backend service that's communicating to that app, now somebody can take a picture on your phone every 20 minutes because you've given the app permission to run in the background and you've given it permission to your camera. So uh, be thoughtful about the software that's on your phone. Ask those questions. But as a developer, you don't ever want to be in the position of, of ending up on one of the security blogs where someone found out that your app was taking a picture every 20 minutes uh, because somebody had hacked into one of your services and you didn't know about it. Right. And thankfully, the platforms um, such as Android and iOS make it very easy for developers to request those permissions as they're needed as opposed to being all lump sum in front. Uh, you know, that way, when you're developing your application, uh, you, you reach a point where in your application, you have to ask for that permission, ask, ask for it at that point instead of ahead of time. So that way um, you're, you're doing your due diligence and, and making it more secure um, rather than, you know, opening up a bunch of vulner potential vulnerabilities and vectors. And I think this falls under the general umbrella of fight for your user. Um, your developers should be, in my opinion, um, putting your users and their experience at the forefront of every decision that's being made, especially when it comes to security. So I think the two rules there are from either an entrepreneur or business buyer or product owner or developer perspective is, first, you have to fight for your user. You have to make sure that you're doing everything you can to keep them secure while giving them the great experience that they want. But on the other hand, you can never trust your users because there are bad actors that are out there. Um, and we have to protect the, the, the majority of our users who just want to use our application in the way it was designed from those bad actors that have malintents. Yeah. So in this developing a secure application process, Jason, so say a, a company comes to you and they said, hey, we, we launched a mobile app eight months ago. Uh, we had a, a team that built it for us. Um, and we just got contacted by some uh, hackers that said that they have compromised our app and they want us to to pay them some money. Um, can you just come in and fix the bugs? So I don't have to pay them. That's a great question. Um, I would certainly refer them to other professionals in the industry about how they would handle and mitigate that risk. That's certainly not what we are experts in. And so I wouldn't give them any advice necessarily on that except other than um, pointing them to professionals in the legal and uh, PR sectors that might be able to help them with the first part of that problem. The second part of the problem I think we certainly can help with, which is stepping in and saying, how do we take something that's insecure and fix it? And the number one um, the thing that has to happen, the first thing that has to happen in that scenario 
is a review and a, a, an audit. We have to figure out how did they get in? What is the vulnerability? How did they discover it? Are there similar vulnerabilities? Are there other attack vectors that could be um, traced back or, or, or spawn from this? And then, of course, a full audit, because if somebody found a vulnerability, chances are there's another, right? And so in that situation of saying this already existed and now this has happened, I think all you can, from a technical standpoint, is audit, fix, and re-release. Um, but these are things that I think should, it, it's easier to solve this problem before you launch, yeah, right? And to so, go get those analysis done prior to taking it to public. Yeah, it's, and uh, so you're kind of saying that it's actually easier potentially to write the app from ground up with security in mind than to go back and try to bolt it on later. Oh, absolutely, because, again, there's this whole PR legal nightmare that I don't even know how to think about if yeah. you've already been compromised. But just the technical aspect and of it. How much does that cost, right? Who knows? Writing it right the first time is certainly the way to go. Now, if I'm a product owner or product manager or you know somebody purchasing software, custom software being developed, um, security is probably not the thing I'm most concerned about. I'm most concerned, is this going to meet my business needs? Is this going to do the things that my customers need? Is this going to act the way that I want it to act? Security is probably not the number one thing you're thinking about. But hopefully after listening to the, at least this last hour, you're beginning to think, wait, if I do release my app without this in mind, that compromise could be amazing. And so the, the exercise I give to a lot of people who are looking to get applications built that don't have a security aspect is I tell them to get a blank sheet of paper. And just like when they were in like fifth grade, and you like draw houses and stuff, draw a house that's the most secure house you can think of. Put a moat around it, put sharks in the moat with lasers on their eyes, put rocket launchers and turrets, um, you know, a drawbridge, and, and make this the most secure home you can. And then think about driving up to that house in the middle of the rain, four kids in the back of the car screaming their heads off, groceries in the trunk, and you have to get inside, right? Now that house is someplace you don't want to live. Yeah. And so to me, when you're building an app, you have to think about how much security is right, but how much how much is too much. And just like that house, you know, it, you would never build a home without a deadbolt, but you're probably not going to build a home with a moat because you want it to also be usable. And unfortunately, though, we see too many apps that ship with no deadbolt, with no door, with no locks on the windows. So we're not saying go spend two years just hardening your app to the point where nobody can use it. Um, but we are saying make sure that you're following the security best practices and making sure that these things that we would all consider um, best for our customers are baked in from the beginning. Yeah, so as a, as a business owner, I'll ask a question for them. So doesn't the Apple App Store review process or the Google Play Store submission process do this whole security code audit for me? Like, why do I have to, to think about this in my development process? I thought they're taking care of all of this. Well, if that was true, then we wouldn't have all the headlines that we see on a continual basis coming out. Now, it is good that Apple um, and Google and, and other uh, App Store providers in different platforms do a review process. I think that this is an excellent service that they're providing to their end user, but they can't catch everything. And they're not supposed to catch everything. I mean, they're looking for those common things that they want to make sure that their customers are getting a good experience, but every app is unique. Every app is different. The backends to those apps, they typically don't have access to that code. Yeah. They're just seeing the code running on the phone. They have no idea what that API looks like sitting at Rackspace or Amazon or you know, Azure, wherever your stuff is, is running. And so they're not best positioned to understand the entire landscape of your software. 
yeah, it's in the, the start is that Anton talked about you've got the the interfacer you said as well, Jason, and we've kind of got this this mainframe style era where you've got that interface in the mobile device. The app store is reviewing that interface. It's not reviewing all the services, the database, all the rest of the components of that whole mobile app experience are not getting audited in part of that review process. Correct. Yeah. So uh, we're uh, getting close to wrapping up here. We're at the uh, the start of 2017, though. So uh, any thoughts, predictions here for the, the year? So like Yogi Berra said, it's hard to make predictions, especially about the future. But uh, the thing that I think 2017 is going to hold that the average consumer now is going to become made aware of is I don't think that we're going to see as many big stories about the web and your mobile devices getting hacked. I think the main stories that are going to come out from the consumer world are my toaster and my dishwasher and the connected devices that are inside of my home that I never thought were connected are all of a sudden going to become the security flaws and the security risk holes inside of both my company and my home uh, as everything becomes a connected device and that connectivity permeates all parts of consumer electronics. Um, I think that's going to be, 2017 is going to be the beginning of what is most likely going to be a multi-year problem in insecure hardware that we would have never thought of. Again, that $29 toaster that is now DDoSing the full eastern seaboard. Yeah, and we, we dove into that on a, an episode, a past episode of Cyber Talk Radio about the Internet of Things. Uh, you can listen to this episode and past episodes on iTunes podcast service, on uh, Pocket Cast, or you can find us on the web at www.cybertalkradio.com where you can learn more about being a guest or uh, digging into any of those past topics and episodes. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining us this week, and uh, look forward to uh, having you guys write some safe apps for your customers in the world to uh, keep it a better place. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us.